So let's say we had never met. And for some of you, you're like, well, that's actually true. So it'll be real easy. But let's pretend like we'd never met. And I would ask you the typical question that most people that just meet for the first time ask each other. And I would ask you, so tell me a little about yourself. This is the audience participation part of the service. So tell me about yourself. What would you tell me in a word or two? Family. Okay, tell me about your family. That I'm a wife, mother, father, husband, son, daughter. A little bit about those relationships, okay? What you do for a living. Yes, we define ourselves by our job most often. Um, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. Uh, If any of you are pastors and you lead with that, you know it ends the conversation. So what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a pastor. Oh. I have many stories, none of which I will bore you with again. Although the cruise story is pretty good. You remember the cruise? You want to hear the cruise story? Okay. So we're on a cruise. (laughs) That's the spoiler, right? And, uh, well, there was this creepy fella, there's no other way to put it, who was hanging around my daughter on the deck. She moved her chair to a place that was apart from the pool. He, he, I don't think you were feeling very good, just wanted to be kind of in the shade. And he came right on around there with her. And Mama texted Daddy or called Daddy or something and said, you need to get down here. And I got down there and began to introduce myself to this fellow. And he began to tell me all about himself. And, of course, he led with the what you do for a living, apparently. He was a gentleman that works, uh, I think, in one of those uh, call 411 pain kind of places. He owned a pain clinic, and he was on a cruise to Mexico. Because, apparently, you can buy some of those things that he sold in his pain clinic for very good prices. Now he told me he brought his whole crew with him because this was a great tax write-off because it was a business trip, and it was just a fabulous thing. And then he said, so what do you do for a living? Funny you should ask. I'm a preacher. You know what he said? Well, praise the Lord. (laughs) Yeah, praise the Lord indeed. Now get away from my daughter. No, anyway. Just interesting. And he started talking about the beauty of the creation. And all of a sudden, I'm like, yeah, okay, good. What's in that cup you're holding there, mister? (laughs) Anyway, so you you lead with what you do for a living. You tell a little bit. What else do you say? We're just meeting. Tell me a little about yourself. What else might you tell me? Where are you from? Yes. I'm from Central Florida. I'm from someplace else. In fact, as I meet some folks that visit us from time to time, that's usually one thing I ask. So, So if you're visiting, where's your home? And here, all sorts of places. What else might you say? You're a Christian. You might talk about faith. Christian is a great word. Use that a lot. Um, that whole preacher thing and Christian sort of goes together. You might talk about something about those things that are important to you. And, and all of that stuff that we just described, really the things that we define ourselves by. We've been talking for several weeks in that vein about who we are in our relationship with God through Christ. We talked about the fact that we are new creations. We are God's workmanship or God's masterpiece, that he created us to do things for him. We talked about the fact that we, last week, that we are overcomers, that God 
has given us the ability through Christ to overcome whatever that we may face. And, and we have that reality. We overcome them by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, as we talked about a little bit last week. And, and we also talked, i got to check my notes because I forget the third one. Oh, yeah, we're ambassadors. God makes his appeal to the world through us as if as we are speaking for God, telling people to be reconciled to God. But the one word that I want to talk about today is the word that in many ways sums up all the others as we wrap up this this series as we're talking about who am I. And believe it or not, it is not any of those things you've just listed. Surprisingly. In fact, if you were guessing, I'm guessing many of you would point to the word that was said last in that series. We talk about faith. We use the word Christian. Christian is a good word, but it has lots of meaning, has lots of nuance to it. People look at that word differently. Did you know, if I were to ask you, I think I've told you this before. Let's see if you paid attention all those years ago. How many times is the word Christian used in the Bible? You know? None? Oh, it's a little more than that. I feel like I'm Bob Barker. Higher! other guesses? Why don't I just tell you? What a great idea. Three. Three times. Once, when it says that Antioch, the, the believers, the, the first uh, followers of Jesus were first called Christians at Antioch. A little bit later in the book of Acts, I think it's Herod that's hearing Paul, and he says, do you think you're going to persuade me to become a Christian? And then in Peter, uh, Peter used, first Peter, Peter uses that word. It's only three times in the Bible, is the word Christian used. And most of the time, it's got a little bit of a derogatory connotation to it. There's one word that I want to talk about today that's, a, that's used predominantly in the Bible to describe those who follow Jesus. It's used, in fact, almost 300 times in the New Testament to describe those who are followers of Jesus. And one place I want to look at is in Luke chapter 6. I think the verses are going to pop up on the, on the screen here as we go along. Uh, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says this, a disciple, and there's our word for the day, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when fully trained, will be like his teacher. So Christian is a word that's gained prominence and has meaning to it, but the the word I want to look at today, the word I want to delve into a little bit is the word disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? Now, I know that word has some baggage attached to it, maybe as well. There was a movement called the Discipleship Movement in the 70s and 80s that had some negative connotations to it, maybe much like Christian has gained in the last 10 or 15 years as well. But the idea of disciple is is a fascinating one. Um, And I want to look at it differently than like, let's look at what the dictionary says, or let's look at this. But I want to look at it through the eyes of a first century Jewish person. What did it mean to be a disciple in the first century, because Jesus was not the first one to have disciples. In fact, there were many like Jesus prior to him and even after him who had followers that were considered disciples. And I think in this verse right here, we see maybe one of the the key ideas about what it means to be a disciple. Because when we talk about modern-day discipleship or modern-day Christianity— Often what we think of is a, an issue of what do you know about Christ. In fact, we would probably think in our 
church structures and other ways, a lot of what we do is akin to the modern educational system. We sit in rows, and somebody stands up front and talks. And sometimes we take notes, and maybe we get together with other small groups and talk about them, and, and that sort of thing. When we leave here, we go to what used to be commonly called Sunday school. Again, that educational mindset. And we have Bible study groups. And the idea being in modern church world, a lot of times we focus on that knowledge component of what it means to be a Christian or a follower of Christ or, in the word today, disciple. But in the first century, that wasn't the case. The issue wasn't that you would know what your leader knows, that you would, as a, as a disciple of Jesus, you would know what Jesus knows. No, the issue was you would be what Jesus is or what your leader is. And I think we need to think about that differently today and want to look at that differently and hopefully can recapture that reality. Because when we talk about who we are as followers of Christ, it's not just intellectual content that's at issue. It's how does that content work its way into and out of our lives? Not what do we know about Jesus, but are we like him? Do we live like him? Now, in the first century, as I said, disciples were pretty common. They were followers of, because it's a Jewish context, rabbi. Rabbi is the, the, the Jewish teacher or religious leader. Often it would would teach in synagogues. As, as you went through Israel back in those days, synagogues were in every town. In fact, the synagogue was the central meeting point of the town. Often towns were constructed around the synagogue. And in fact, that's not so foreign to us in, in America. Back in the buildup of many cities, if you go to downtown this city or downtown that city, what do you often see in the midst of downtown? Well, there's the first Baptist church, and there's the first Methodist church, and there's the first this church, and there's the first that church, and they all have bells, and they all go off. And at noon, you know, back in the height of that city, the, the central point of town revolved around faith. And that's a outgrowth, really, of, of the early church and the Old Testament view that the, the synagogue in that day was the central point of town. And all the houses and the little villages would be built around it. It would be the meeting point. It would be the discussion point. When, when uh, speakers came to town, when important people came, often much of what would happen in a small town would happen at the synagogue. It was central to the community life of a first century Jewish person in that day, and, and that would be the case as well. And now what would happen is in those synagogues, they also had, like we do in our Sunday school, they would have schools. Um, they were, in fact, the educational center of the community. And the, the textbook for that community was the old, what we call the Old Testament, primarily the Torah. And the, the children would go to this area, they would go to that center, there would be a room off the side of it, they would gather, and they would be instructed by, in this case, the, the regular leader of that synagogue, or maybe even from time to time a visiting rabbi who would tell them different things. And it was a remarkable life that they lived there in this idea of community. And community was so important to the first century. We see it a little bit in the idea of the kibbutz. You know what a kibbutz is, right? 
it's usually a farm of some kind, a communal farm. Uh, it's sort of a Hebrew idea that many would gather on, and they'd pool their resources, and they'd graze the, the livestock and the, the crops, and they would support each other. It's, it's a, a small, sometimes isolated or insulated community of people that revolves around faith and a shared lifestyle. And that was the idea back in these cities. There was that community aspect. And anything that happened in that central place, it was out of the community. Now, central to that community, as we've already discussed, is the Torah. One of the things that we take for granted, do you have a book like this? Yep. Do you have one? You know, we, we stick them, the black books that are under it. Some of you have a book that's like this, only it looks like this. Yes? Who's got your digital book? Come on, raise your hand in the air and wave them like you just don't care. Not going to admit it? Okay, two of you. Whatever. I'm going to keep it up here just for the... Hopefully it doesn't go off. And you would have a book like that. That's normal for us. Churches have them. You probably have them in your home. Maybe several of them. You have, I don't know how many copies are on an app or, or on a... On a on your uh, tablet that you have right at your fingertips. In Jesus' day, that wasn't the case. One of the prized possessions of any community was the scroll that was kept at the synagogue. And we don't come close to this in our day. When I was a teenager, I got to go to the bar mitzvah of one of my friends. And this was my favorite part of the whole service. When the time came for uh, the candidate for bar mitzvah to read from the Torah scrolls, boy, did they have fun. They cranked up the music. The the priests, the leaders, the rabbis, whoever were there, they, they got their prayer shawls on. And they started dancing around. They went to this very ornate cabinet that was kind of the central point of the stage. And they opened the doors. And, and the, the Torah scroll they had was probably three or four or five feet tall. And one of the leaders would kind of put it on his hand, and he would dance around the room, and he would go from the front, from the stage, and he'd go down each aisle, and the music is playing, and everybody's just dancing around, so excited, we brought the Torah out, and all the people would try to press their way to the aisle, and and the men particularly would take their prayer shawl, the drape that they had, and they would they would touch it to the Torah as it went by, and then they would kiss it, and do that as many times as they could do, as slow as they were going through to try to touch and show the, their, their allegiance or their, their love for the words of this book. In fact, one of the things that, that they would say is, may, may the words of God be like honey to our lips. And, and it was that dedication and that love for the words of God. And central to the synagogue life, even in Jesus' day, was the moment when the Torah would be brought out. And the celebration that would ensue among the people, it was so important because in that moment, they were celebrating the fact God has spoken to us. And we have his very words that we can open and read and we can hear from God himself what he has instructed for us to know and how we could live. A huge moment of celebration. You know, often Jesus would go, And when he would go from town to town, where would he find himself? He'd go to the synagogue. And when he went to the synagogue, because he was recognized as he he kind of came to the height of his ministry, he would often be asked to read from it. There was often no greater honor to bestow upon a visitor 
to the to the synagogues and to ask them to read from the Torah. Could you imagine if we did that like in, in church world today? Hi, this is your first time at First Baptist Church? Well, come on up here and read from the Bible. We're going to go from, I don't know, Leviticus with all those weird names in it. You can just, right? That would, people would be like, oh, I'm never coming back. Which you may already think if this is your first time, that's okay. But, you know, that was this, this point of honor. One place they would, they would sit, and you, you read this in, in Scripture in the New Testament, they would sit in the seat of Moses. Now, that's both figurative and literal, because every synagogue had a place that was called, guess what? The seat of Moses. And when you went to that synagogue, and, and most of the time this was on like the, the front porch of the synagogue. A lot of times in these communities, there wasn't like we are in nice rows and padded chairs and air conditioning also you can sleep better during the sermon. No, they were often outside, outside of the front door as it was even from the temple, the idea of the Holy of Holies, no one could go in there but that high priest. Only limited access to the inner sanctum of the synagogue or the temple. And so they would sit outside, and, and right under the, the shade of the kind of the front porch would be a seat that was called the seat of Moses. And the person reading from the Torah after it made its parade would sit in that seat, and they would give it to him, and he would open it, and he would read, acting as if he's speaking with the authority of Moses, to whom God revealed the words of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And, and in that seat, he would offer his explanation. We see times when Jesus would do that. And, and often all he would do is read and say a few words, and that would be it. Wouldn't it be great to go to church where a sermon wasn't 45 minutes long? Can I get an amen? No, don't say that. But this is very simple, straightforward sort of thing. And the whole community would come there, and they would have their education there, and they would have these visiting rabbis that would come in and of various levels of renown. And often what would be the goal of any young man, probably teenage young man, would be hopefully there would be something about his education that would be remarkable enough that one of these well-known traveling rabbis would allow him to follow them. And so in that, in that Sabbath school, in that synagogue school, they would do their lessons and they would learn well, and maybe one of these well-known rabbis would come to town and read, and, and this young man who wanted himself to learn more would approach the rabbi and would ask, may I be your disciple? May I follow you? And the rabbi would have basically a, a bit of an oral examination of that candidate. He would, like, you know, your doctoral dissertation has to be done. He would ask all these questions and probe and see if this young person showed the ability or the acumen to possibly follow along with the rabbi. And if he decided that this person was worthy, he would say to him, follow me. I think you can be like me. That's what the goal was. Not that you would learn something, but that you would become like the one that you followed. And rabbis had a particular way of looking at Scripture. And it's an interesting word they used to describe their way of interpreting the Old Testament. Jesus used it, and it's actually found in uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. It's a passage you may be familiar with, and maybe I just kind of learned this in the last little bit. This is Jesus talking as a rabbi to people who might be interested in following him. He says in Matthew, chapter 11, Beginning in verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, 
and I will give you rest. Next slide. Take my, here's the word, yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, I grew up in central Florida, in Leesburg, in a, a farming area. My parent, we actually had horses and a cow. And one cow. Two horses, one cow. So it wasn't really a farm. It was sort of a hobby. And we had a garden. And my job was to weed the garden. I've told you before, I think that's why my parents had children. They were tired of weeding. And so there we came. And, and we, my, my grandfather, my, actually my dad's grandfather, so my great-grandfather, who was in Virginia, had a, a much larger piece of property, and he had some barns on there. He used to have more livestock, and he had some amazing old farm equipment. And one of the things he had was a yoke. Have you ever seen a yoke? I have a picture of a yoke. Yoke's on you? No, wait, that's right. Um, I think there's a picture. Crossing my fingers. Hey, there it is. There's a yoke. It's that wooden thing that you place across, in this case, two oxen. And it allows them to be uh, lashed or, or roped to a, a load, a burden to carry. And often when we think about yoke, that's what we think about. And, and when we read this passage, that may be one of the images that's in mind. But one of the things that, that we maybe don't see from our modern way of looking at it is that in the, in the rabbinical tradition... Yoke also meant a particular way of interpreting the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, and his disciples are literally saying to us, he wants us to take his yoke upon us because why? His burden is easy and the load is light. Why would he say that? Well, there's this plethora, many traditions of the rabbis, and some of the best-known ones in Jesus' day were very, very difficult. They were very particular in that, maybe from Hillel or Gamaliel or his grandfather, these traditions, these yokes of the rabbi were intense ways of looking at the minutia of the law. And the yoke of the rabbi that was popular in his day involved so many rules that you had to keep. In fact, we, we see Jesus say to some of the Pharisees, what does he say? You tithe, but not just of your income. You tithe of your spices, of your mint and your dill. They were so diligent. They thought to, the only way to possibly please God is to, to deal in the itty-bitty minutia of the law and make sure we get everything exactly right. And that's what pleases God. And what does Jesus say to them? But you missed the real picture, the big picture the important things. How did you know what a rabbi's yoke was? I'm so glad you asked that question because you were all thinking it, right? One of the ways that a student would try to discern what a rabbi's yoke was was to ask a very important question. This is the question. What is the greatest commandment? Does that sound familiar? Couldn't somebody ask Jesus that very thing? They wanted to know, in fact, in, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, it tells us, Teacher, some of these came to him and asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? This is like a probing question. This is, I want to see as a rabbi where you're coming from. I want to see what your priorities are. I want to see how particular you are in your look at the law. And do you remember what Jesus said? What's the greatest commandment? 
that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and mind and strength. And the second one is likened to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then the last part, what does he say? He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. He's saying to those and to us, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, if you want to take my yoke upon you, I got two rules for you. Love God and love your neighbor. Which maybe explains why people wanted to know, well, then who is my neighbor? Because that was kind of important to a rabbi whose yoke involved loving your neighbor as yourself. You got to know, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, I got to know who is my neighbor. That's another sermon for another day, another month, another year, I guess. But nonetheless, these are the things that summarize for Jesus as people were prying and prodding. What does it mean to follow you? What does it mean to be your disciple? He said, this is what it means. Love God and love each other. His teaching was simple, but don't get it wrong. Putting into practice is exceedingly tough. It has all sorts of nuance that we spend a lifetime trying to figure out. But at the same time, I see why Jesus could say, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all you who are tired of trying to keep all the rules, trying to abide by the minutia of all the particulars of the law. Do you know how extensive the law works out to be? 613 particular commandments in the law. And then the, the, the outgrowth of that is how do I take words that were written several thousand years ago and apply them to where I am in my life? How do I interact with the fact that I don't have to build a fire to cook? I just turn a knob. How do I deal with that? And so over the course of history, different rabbis from different traditions, we might say with different yokes, would spell out what that meant for the modern person. What does it mean that you can't build a fire on the Sabbath? Well, for some it means things like if you're going to cook something, you cook it before the Sabbath. For others it means you start the fire, you turn on the stove before the Sabbath starts. And as long as it's on before the Sabbath starts, you can use that fire. For some that means if you flip a light switch. There are those who say, well, that's actually starting a fire. So... You have to turn on the light before the Sabbath starts at sundown if you want any light that night, because after the Sabbath starts, you can't flip the switch because that starts a fire. And all these, these arguments back and forth, this is what one rabbi would say, and this is what another rabbi would say, and this tradition, and this yoke. And, and so we go from 613 commandments in the Torah to volumes of books that have been organized and cataloged over the years. In fact, in my seminary library, it was like, most of a shelf were these uh, interpretations of the law and the particulars of how it would apply at any point in history. You know, just reading those books is exhausting. Much less trying to live by all the itty-bitty little rules and wondering, oh, did I turn on that light switch 30 seconds too late? What does that mean? I mean, Jesus says, all you who are weary of that kind of thing. All you who are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy. What's my yoke? You love God 
with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Again, easy to summarize, but living out takes some getting used to. And so he said that, and the disciples that he had at that time were the ones who were willing to take that yoke upon them. Who were willing to live that way. Not to have their understanding or certain, you know, check boxes, true and false, multiple choice questions they could answer the right way, but who thought they could live like Jesus did. And that was the essence of being a disciple in that day. These men who wanted to be a disciple of a rabbi like Jesus would leave everything to follow him. In fact, there was a saying, I've used it before, I think it's a great saying, that, that um, as you followed someone who was your rabbi, the saying was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Meaning you follow so close behind them in your life that the dust they kick up on the road as they walk covers you. That you were that close to them. You were that intent on how they lived their life. And that you were that determined to put that practice in your own life. Covered in the dust of your rabbi. How can you do that? Well, that's the thing that I think when I look at this word disciple makes a huge difference. Because if we want to be those who are disciples of Jesus, who are learners and followers, and who are in fact covered in his dust, as the saying goes, then we've got to be awfully close to him. How do we learn what it means and live what it means? to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's a great question. It's a lifetime pursuit. And the only way that we get there is if we follow Him closely. How do we follow Him? How do we live out what it means to be a disciple? I would love, at times, a ten-point list that told me, if you do these ten things, you're good. Wouldn't that be so much easier? Just 10 things. Is 10 too much? 20. 30? Oh, wait, 613. How do I become like somebody else? Isn't it just spend time with them? Have you noticed? People that were married a long time, they start to look like each other. They do, it happens. Not necessarily hairline. But have you noticed their mannerisms begin to mirror each other? Can we at least go that far? They use the same phrases, same terminology. They get mad at the same stuff, and they laugh at the same stuff. And they have whole conversations without saying a word. Doesn't that really annoy you? Like you're sitting there talking and they make a look and you can tell in those 30 seconds, they've just, or those three seconds, they've had 10 minutes worth of conversation. Why? Because they've spent that time together. They know each other. They've done life together in a way that has created in each other those similarities. And isn't that the same way I would suggest to you we could emulate Jesus? I don't think Jesus came to give us new rules to live by. I don't think Jesus came so that we might learn some new things about God and have better information than somebody else. 
day that Jesus came, I think the scriptures tell us that our job as followers of Jesus or as disciples is that we would become like him. Not learn and know what he knew, but be like he was. In fact, that's the origin of the term Christian, to go back where we started a little bit ago. Christian means little Christ. And the reason it was used is because as the church in Antioch or Herod or wherever else happened, they would look at these followers of Jesus and sort of derisively call them little Christ, little Jesuses walking around. Meant as an insult, but probably in many ways should be the greatest compliment that people would look at us and say, oh, you remind me so much of Jesus that you're just like a little Jesus walking around my neighborhood or my office in our house. We're so covered in the dust of our rabbis. And these earliest followers of Jesus, I don't know if you you remember, but none of them presented themselves to Jesus. Do you remember that? In fact, the, the record of the Gospels is the opposite. Jesus went to them. Do you remember that? And said to the fishermen, follow me. Okay, that's upside down and backwards. Remember a few minutes ago I told you what would happen is the rabbi would come to town and the hopefuls would present themselves to the rabbi and hope they were good enough to go with him. Sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. Jesus did it the opposite. He came to people that were already kind of doing their thing. They had decided I'm going to be a fisherman or I'm going to be a tax collector or I'm going to be this and he said to them follow me. And again, dropped everything in a way that doesn't make sense to us. But they dropped everything to follow him. There is no greater honor in that day than to be called to be a disciple of a rabbi. And so they dropped everything to follow. And that should show us, hey, by the way, that's the same thing that happens today. In fact, Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Well, that's what he could say to us. For whatever reason, because of nothing remarkable in and of ourselves, he, in his sovereignty, decided and chose that we would be his followers. And he makes the invitation, like he did to those fishermen and those tax collectors and the others that we see in the Gospels, to come to follow him. Not to learn certain things, not to, to act certain ways, but to be like him to press in so close to who he was and who the Bible reveals him to be, that his very character begins to manifest itself in our lives. And you know what graduation day is, don't you? Well, that could be taken a lot of ways. But for the disciples, graduation day, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, what did he tell them? He started out by saying, come, follow me. At the very end, right before he ascends to the Father, what does he say to them? Go. And do what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all the things that I've commanded you. And I will surely be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Jesus is saying to them, you have been with me for these three years. You're ready. You've 
absorb not my teaching, but my character in a way that I'm ready to send you out to start the process all over again. And so the word that, that Scripture uses about 300 times, the New Testament uses about 300 times to describe those who follow Jesus as disciples. I think to emphasize the fact that our pursuit is Jesus himself. Not knowledge about him, and not facts, and not doctrine, but Jesus. The one who came and walked this earth, God in the flesh, who lived out perfectly what it means on this earth to be a person who lives for God, and who modeled it for us in a way that we could then take up that mantle, or better yet, in his own words, take up the cross and follow him. Jesus said, if anyone be my disciple, that was what they have to do. So I guess when I think about all that, the question that comes to mind is this. How badly today do you want to be like Jesus? How badly do you want to be like Jesus? In the first century, to follow a rabbi meant you would leave everything at a moment's notice and passionately pursue the one to whom you pledged yourself. Do you find in your own life that same allegiance to Jesus, that same passion for Him? Do you find yourself drawn to Him, reading His Word, learning about Him, wanting to know what does it mean? How in this situation can I love God or love my neighbor? How in that circumstance can I embody the very character of Jesus in this situation, in my home, in my workplace, in my neighborhood? How badly do we want to follow Jesus? How much another way, does his dust cover us? Jesus said it. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me and you will find rest for your souls. You don't have to struggle anymore. You don't have to try to please God. You don't have to wonder if you're doing it good enough. Just follow me. Be like Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift and the example of your Son. I thank you that in Jesus the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld the, His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, who was full of grace and truth. I thank you for that example. I thank you for His call to us that we can follow Him, that we can be like Him, that we can, in fact, be disciples. Lord, we started this series by saying when we know who we are, we'll know what to do. And I pray, Lord, that we will take on and embody that role of disciple that will help us know, even in the difficult circumstances of life, what to do as your character is more and more formed in us. And as our living out our faith more and more resembles the life that you live. Thank you for your love and your grace and your salvation. We pray these things now in Christ's name.